0: Hi everyone, Um, my name is April Trotter and I'm the intern for um, Research and Plug this semester. Um, Carrie Frazier is an associate professor of African and African American studies and history here at Penn State. Um, Sorry, he teaches 20th century African American history and the history of American foreign policy. Um, He's widely educated, receiving his um, PhD in history and international relations from the University of Geneva in Switzerland. Um, He received his master's degree in um, international relations from the University of the West Indies and his bachelor's degree from the University of Guyana. Um, His research interests include American foreign policy, the contemporary Caribbean, the history of international relations, and today's topic, the civil rights movement. Um, He's been a visiting fellow at a bunch of universities, including Cornell, the University of Maryland, Princeton, and the University of Rochester. Um, And he's also been the recipient of fellowships from the Social Science Research Council, and the MacArthur Foundation. Um, he is also currently working on a book discussing the impact of the civil rights movement on American foreign policy between the period of 1941 and 1965. So please join me in welcoming Professor Frazier.
1: I have a bit of a call, but I'll try to overcome that. Thank you all for coming, and I- I should say a special thanks to Emily Rowlands uh, and her colleagues for inviting me to do this talk today. This is part of a longer-term project that I'm working on, on the way that citizenship in America has been redefined over the 20th century. It's one of the interesting things about American history in the 20th century, that women were given the right to vote with the 19th Amendment in 1920 which was their full admission to citizenship in this society. Native Americans were granted citizenship in 1924 and then after that we had the development of the civil rights struggle and ultimately the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 which brought African-Americans into the mainstream of American society as citizens, as full citizens. What is particularly important I think Is that over the course of the 20th century, the barriers to race and other restraints on citizenship were slowly eroded. And I think education has played an important part in that entire process. And I want to address some of those issues today. Part of the reason for focusing on the Brown versus the Board of Education decision by the Supreme Court. It's not only that it was a unanimous decision, which essentially declared segregation unconstitutional, but also because of the wording of that decision. Let me just read a couple of extracts from it. The Chief Justice Earl Warren asserted in that decision, We must consider public education in the light of its full development and its present place in American life throughout the nation. Education, he said, is the very foundation of good citizenship. It is an extraordinary statement coming from the Supreme Court in 1954 because this, to me, is something that has really not been recognized for what it was. That is, that he was putting in place the notion that education was the basis of citizenship, not property as originally started under the Constitution, nor race as it evolved over the previous centuries of American society. In essence, he was redefining the way in which citizenship was going to be constituted in this society. You can turn to say, in these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education. Such an opportunity where the state has undertaken to provide it is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms. In essence, I would say, Warren was arguing that the evolution of American society had transformed education into both an attribute of citizenship and a right that was a yardstick for measuring equality in American political life. He then went on to make the much more pronunci- uh, much more recognizable statement, in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. I think what is important about this is that 50 years after the Brown versus the Board of Education decision Gary Orfield and his colleagues at the Harvard Civil Rights Project produced a series of studies that have convincingly demonstrated that American education is rapidly returning to the levels of segregation that defined America in the era before Brown versus the Board of Education The question that has to be asked is why has desegregating education in this country proven so intractable, even as the Supreme Court had ruled unanimously on the issue? In some ways, I think what we need to understand is the way that the issue of education to African Americans was debated long before Brown versus the Board of Education. The black American intellectual W. E. B. De Bois made a very revealing comment in the early years of the 20th century. And this, I think, says something because we are essentially addressing this issue a hundred years after he made this statement. It is the public schools, however, which can be made outside the home the greatest means of training decent self-respecting citizens. We have been so heartily engaged recently in discussing trade schools and higher education that the pitiable plight of the public school system in the South has almost dropped from view. Of every $5 spent for public education in the state of Georgia, the white schools get $4 and the Negro $1. And even then, the white public school system saving the cities is bad and cries for reform. If this is true of the whites, what of the blacks? It's an extraordinary statement that he's making in the first decade of the 20th century, and we back essentially, to a very similar position in the first decade of the 21st century. I think this is something that needs to be understood, really, because part of the issue is that there has been the assumption that the Brown versus the Board of Education settled the issue of segregated education. It settled the legal issue. It did not settle the practical issue. And this is the point I, I want to make. Part of what is driving this, I would suggest, is part of an irrationality that is part of American politics. And The man who wrote the book on which the film Birth of a Nation, Thomas Dixon, proclaimed in uh, in 1904, discussing uh, Booker T. Washington, the point I raise is that education necessarily drives the races further apart and Mr. Washington's brand of education makes the gulf between them, if anything, a little deeper. If there is one thing a Southern white man cannot endure, it is an educated Negro. Dixon's views reflected the deep-seated fear of the transformative impact of education upon the African-American community that has haunted American life. Dixon was not singular. This is the Mississippi Senator James Vardaman, talking about the fact that Northern philanthropists were funding black schools in the South. What the North is sending South is not money, but dynamite. This education is ruining our Negroes. They are demanding equality. It's extraordinary. The demand for equality is seen as dynamite. And I would suggest that that is part of the rationality to which I was addressing. Now. What is particularly important, I think, to to address is that the Supreme Court, in in essence, put down the legal basis for reframing education in this society in 1954, but it has not worked. And the issue that we have to address is what are the strategies best able now, after 50 years, that will be best able To bring about the changes that are needed. What is striking for me is that the President of Harvard University, James Bryant Conant, in 1940, as the United States was facing the entry into the Second World War, delivered a convocation address at the University of California, um, in which he said, A horde of heterogeneous students has descended on our secondary schools. On our ability to handle all types intelligently depends in large measure the future of this country. What Conant said in 1940 still stands today. What is particularly interesting is that after 1940, and particularly after 1945, especially with the, the veterans' bills, the American educational system was transformed. It was expanded, it was transformed, and one of the interesting things about it was that American education acquired an unprecedented level of prestige and accomplishment as part of that process. What we have to understand is that if it could be done after 1945, why can't it be done now? What are the lessons from that process of expanding the American educational system after 1945 that led to its development to being unparalleled in certain levels and addressing the issues that face this country now. I think <coughs> what is particularly important, again, is that as part of the conservative resurgence in this country since the 1980s has been the reopening of the debate over education, over questions of affirmative, affirmative action and a whole range of other issues. What I find particularly interested is that a Republican-dominated Supreme Court, in 2003, in a decision authored by Sandra Day O'Connor, reiterated the finding of the Brown decision that education is the very foundation of good citizenship, and then goes on to argue, for this reason, the diffusion of knowledge and opportunities through public institutions of higher education must be accessible to all individuals regardless of race or ethnicity, The United States affirms that ensuring public institutions are open and available to all segments of American society, including people of all races and ethnicities, represents a paramount government objective. Effective participation by members of all racial and ethnic groups in the civic life of our nation is essential if the dream of one nation, indivisible, is to be realized. I would argue that Sandra Day O'Connor was articulating very clearly, not only that education was the basis of citizenship, but she was making sure that it was understood that access to education was key to the future functioning of this society. It's a particularly interesting decision because what is also important about it is that then she goes on to say, universities and in particular law schools represent the training ground for a large number of our nation's leaders. In order to cultivate a set of leaders with legitimacy in the eyes of the citizenry, it is necessary that the path to leadership be visibly open to talented and qualified individuals of every race and ethnicity. All members of our heterogeneous society must have confidence in the openness and integrity of the educational systems that provide this training access to legal education must be inclusive of talented and qualified individuals of every ethnicity so that all members of our heterogeneous society may participate in the educational institutions that provide the training and education necessary to succeed in America. I was particularly struck by the fact that Santander O'Connor wrote this. And then we have two lawyers in the Senate, the US Senate, one of them Joseph Biden and the other one Barack Obama. And Obama is referred to by Biden as clean and articulate. It's an extraordinary statement, but I think it's also a very powerful teaching moment because it tells you something about the culture in which diversity has been absent in the U.S. Senate. What is striking for me is that someone of Obama's background could encounter this sort of response within the U.S. Senate. It is not only a question of the level of the educational institutions, but at the level of the political institutions of this society, that diversity has not been frontally addressed. I make that point because what I think is particularly important is that we need to create in the classrooms a sense that diversity and intellectual excellence are not contradictory. An essential part of restructuring the school systems in this country will be creating schools where people will feel comfortable being in diverse environments and being able to engage people from all sorts of backgrounds without any concern about a lack of excellence. One of the hidden, deba- one of the hidden currents of the debate that is taking place over affirmative action in this society is the notion that somehow or the other diversity implies an abandonment of excellence. I think that issue has to be addressed and it has to be addressed frontally. And abandonment of what was the Diversity. Diversity. Oh, sorry, of intellectual excellence. Diversity implies the abandonment of intellectual excellence. Okay. I think that has to be addressed and addressed very clearly in the way that schools are restructured in this society. I would make the argument that a return to segregated education in this society is a return, it will be the beginning of a process of long-term economic decline. Many people have looked at Hurricane Katrina as an isolated incident. I would make the argument that no, it's not an isolated incident. It is, in fact, an indication of the poor quality of education of current policymakers, And I'd make the, I say that without any hesitation. Beyond the question of whether, in fact, um, the population of New Orleans was properly prepared for the hurricane, What was striking for me is that this is not the first hurricane of that force that has hit this country's Gulf Coast. It happened in Galveston before and the entire city was destroyed. What was striking for me is that in the upper reaches of the federal government of this country, nobody understood the scientific data that existed about these storms and what the capacity for destruction was. Beyond anything else, that is what struck me, that no one really understood what this storm could do to that environment and how fragile the Gulf Coast environment is. The question I have to ask is, if you are not properly prepared at the levels of the highest levels of government in this country to deal with scientific information, what does that say about the educational process in this country? there's a question that needs to be addressed. This is not about race. This is about understanding the importance of education because in the final analysis this society was built on a very complex educational process and the erosion of that educational process will lead to the erosion of a whole range of other issues in this society that will in fact play into long-term decline. One of the things I raise with my students that I think is particularly important to keep in mind is that in the 19th century, Britain became the industrial workshop of the world, and it became the most influential nation on the planet. In the early 20th century, the United States overtook Britain. In the 21st century, who has overtaking the United States? There is a process that is related to education, industrial production, and national power. And what we are looking at right now is a process by which the neglect of the educational system in this country and largely tied to the fact that there is an unwillingness to engage people across the society in education. This country is beginning to slip economically. I'll just read you something that is particularly, I found extraordinary. In 1956, no, in 1955, at the commencement ceremonies here at Penn State, President Dwight Eisenhower, who came to deliver the convocation address, made this speech. It's the same. It's the year after the Brown decision. In our modern higher education, we have, I believe, three principal difficulties. First, in its practical aspect, we simply are not providing it to sufficient numbers of young men and women. Second, we are not as proficient as we should be in providing a broad citizenship education to those who specialize in many technical fields. And third, even in liberal education, we have permitted it to become too much a specialization, rather than a broad liberating influence on the mind, the attitude, and the character of all students. What we need is general education, combining the liberal and the practical, which helps a student achieve solid foundation of understanding, understanding of man's social institutions, of man's art and culture, and of the physical, biological, and spiritual world in which he lives. It is an education which helps each individual learn how to relate one relevant fact to another, to get the total relevant facts affecting a given situation in perspective, and to reason critically and with the objectivity and moral conscience towards solutions to those problems, those situations and problems. I repeat, this kind of education is sorely needed in this country and throughout the world. What is striking is that 50 years after both Brown and this speech, by Eisenhower, here there is still a lot left to be accomplished. So, I'll be quite willing to take whatever questions. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. In addition to the Biden comment and Katrina.
2: Can you give specific examples, perhaps? On
3: um, you said a study was done in about two thousand and four. How things are going backwards? Uh, can you give more examples of that, of how things are going back to uh, pre-Brown versus the
1: Board? Well, I would make the argument that uh, there was a very. <laughs> Let me put this: What came out of the Harvard study was that the South moved furthest along desegregating schools after 1955, uh, particularly after the 1960s, particularly after the Voting Rights Act. But starting in the 1980s and into the 1990s began a process by which the Supreme Court began to reverse course and which abandoned the notion that historic patterns of segregation were no justification for pursuing programs for integrating schools. That is tied to a structural problem in this country which has to do with the financing of local education. If schools, and I would make the argument that a fundamental part of the problem is that local control over education is the biggest single obstacle to dealing with the question of educational reform in this country, and it's not because I don't respect the interests of local stakeholders in their school districts, but I will make the argument that some of the things that have happened like in Dover, Pennsylvania where people were attempting to introduce into the curriculum creationism is an indication in some sense that local control can undermine the intellectual integrity of the educational process. And if it is not addressed properly this will continue to be a problem. I would say that in fact what has been shown is that at the national federal level there's a recognition that change has to take place. The biggest single obstacle has been the continued local control over education.
3: Isn't there a problem, however, if everything is handed over to the federal government, one day you may have a crazy president (laughs) who might try to introduce something like creationism
4: Throughout the country.
1: That's a risk you're, you're taking. Yeah, it. no, I, I think it's a risk, but I, I am yet to see any president who can influence the educational process in this country. And I say that very seriously, because the issue is not the power of the president, the issue is, and I will say it quite frankly. Is the level of education that is available through the public institutions in this society. There is a very strong commitment to public education in this society, and if if public education continues to function well, I don't think there is any president who can undermine that process. It's not that you are not going to have episodes of craziness within the system, but I do think that there has to be an understanding at the national level that the curriculum, the standards, and the structure of the schools have to be changed significantly. If not, you will continue to have the disparities in the educational system that you continue to have in this country. Let me just give you an example. I'll go back to Katrina. To what extent was there at every level of the government but a state, local, federal government in the Katrina episode which showed that people did not understand the way that poverty defines the options to the poor in their society. They had essentially devised a plan for getting people out of New, York, New Orleans that broke down well before the storm hit. The question that you have to ask yourself is, given the level of poverty in New Orleans, why were all of the policymakers, makers, whether the local level, the state level, or the government level, failed to understand what they were dealing with? I would suggest that part of the problem is that government policy making Has become divorced at a certain level from the real concerns of people. I would make the argument that given the importance of education, people will stay invested in that. But if there's a prior decision that education should remain accessible only to certain people, you will continue to have the problems that you have in this society. Could
3: you comment on? the um, effect that the inc- high and increasing cost of education has on, on equality or uh, within the uh, educational system?
1: The idea that somehow or the other money translates into quality is something that I find bizarre. And I'll say that in a very straightforward fashion. I spent the first 18 years of my life in a society where I received a high-quality education that is simply not available to people in this society except in the elite schools. And the question I have to ask is, if in a relatively poor society I could get access to that education, why is it so difficult? The problem is not the money, it's the approach to education. I would make the argument that, and this is something that I think it's particularly important to, to say. I grew up in a society with six different ethnic groups. I went to school with people of six different ethnic groups. I was taught by people of six different ethnic groups. And I grew up in that context and came out of school with an understanding that intellectual competence had nothing to do with ethnicity. As a result of it, I had my entire class or all of my classes that I went through were very diverse classroom experiences. What was striking for me is that when I came to this country was the encounter with the notion that ethnicity is a determinant of intellectual ability. And the local structure of education reinforces that because of the use of local taxes to fund the schools, because of the high levels of residential segregation that continue to exist in the society. The issue is not the amount of money spent in the classroom, it's the quality of the schools, the quality of the teachers. Funding is important, but the more important thing I, thing I think is providing the classroom experience so that kids can learn. And they will learn. I went to school with people whose parents worked as laborers on the sugar plantations. They excelled. There was no conception of people as anything other than having intellectual potential and that it should be developed. So I would make the argument that the issue is not money. The issue is the structure of the educational system, which is tied to local funding and which has to be addressed. And then on top of that will have to be the redesign of the curriculum and the structuring of the schools. I'll give you an example. I learned more about race in this society from my daughter's experience going up here than from anything I encountered. At the age of six, I put her in public school after she'd been in a Montessori school for a couple of years. And within a month, I received a note saying that she was in need of remedial education. She'd been in school for two years in a Montessori school. She goes into public school. and I received a note saying she needed remedial education. When I called to discover what it was, they told me that she didn't pronounce her THs So I said, we don't either. It's a learned skill. It is not a speech impediment. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious about
5: your early education. Were you able to make distinctions amongst choices of classes that you took, or were you in a fixed curriculum?
1: You were in a fixed curriculum.
5: Precisely so. In that case, would you address the problems in our schools as being associated with allowing students to pick and choose amongst a large variety of subjects and generally students, pick those that are easiest?
1: I I would make the argument that it's not only a question of students being given the easiest, but a part of the problem is the assumption that education is a recreational activity, is something to be enjoyed. I don't share that view. I take the view that education should prepare you to learn to work. And in that kind of context, what was clear to me, and and this is something that I think is particularly important. I saw it in, in the context of the way my daughter was taught math in this country. We had a set curriculum. And at the end of every academic year, there were certain skills that you were expected to master and you were tested on. So every year, it was a a building block on to the the development of your skills. It was highly segmented, highly stratified, and if you did not make it, you had to remain a year in order to go back. In that kind of context, what I think was that the education system was limited in terms of the options but it was rigorous in terms of discipline. And that, I think, is a fundamental problem that occurs in the American educational system. Let me, let me just give you the example again with my daughter. When I saw that she was learning math one semester, uh, algebra one semester, geometry another, and trigonometry another, I found it bizarre. Because the way I grew up being taught math is that you had to learn arithmetic, algebra, geometry, and trigonometry simultaneously. Because skills that were available in one subset of math were required in the other subsets. And there was no way that they could be separated out. You were taught math as an integrated process. And that, I think, is a fundamental part of the problem. The way that education is designed in this country, in fact, creates these problems. I'm really
5: interested in your comment on education itself. And as I'm listening to you, I agree with the notion of the spiral curriculum. And I also think that the school system provides, here in America, provides a great deal of information, content. So it is there for us. That's one observation. And uh, I want you to respond to my thinking about this. It has to do with how the information is used or the integration of the information and the practical use for humanity that the education is 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 you know mm-hmm. focused on. I, I think the information and the content and the skills. Because look at what we have produced <coughs> as a country. So w- what's your reaction to I, that? I
1: would make the argument that in, in a very interesting way. I'm not. I'm not a very. Uh, I'm not a, a, an advocate of private education, but one of the things that strikes me is that if you look at the best performing public schools in this country, they follow the practices of private educational institutions. They, they follow the practices of private educational institutions, where there's an, an emphasis on intellectual rigor, and not only of information, and having, they, they have some choice too, but what is particularly important is that they are taught how to process information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, are not, they are not inundated with it. They are taught how to deal with it selectively. Because critical to this, and I will make the argument, that this is the importance of education for decision makers. Decision makers have to learn to identify what is important. If you're not well-educated, you can't make those decisions. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the charter schools these days? They seem to be taking the role between public and private? My argument would be that it depends on the context in which you find the charter schools. Some charter schools are driven by ideological agendas or religious agendas or other things. I would make the argument that charter schools can exist as a model for reforming the public educational system, but it has to be well designed. It can not be done haphazardly.
2: So, yeah. I was going to suggest earlier that um, education, um, I think you were quoting the Supreme Court, education is the basis of citizenship. Um, and I'm wondering, um, would you, does it follow then that, in your mind, that that, ed- that lack of education or lack of a quality education uh, is part of being disenfranchised as um, in t- politically in the country. And also I'm wondering about your thoughts about uh, voting apathy, the apathy that exists in this country and whether that, how that falls in terms of racial lines and, and education opportunities.
1: It, it, may, it may fall, let me put it as way. It also has regional characteristics that are quite interesting. Um, one of the interesting things about uh, this question of education and citizenship and its relationship to political activity is the extent to which it is also possible that amongst some of the most highly educated people in the society they have become alienated from the politics of the country. So it is not a question of a (coughs) deprivation of access to education but in fact having access to education may lead to a certain level of alienation. And you're already beginning to see it in the quality of people aspiring to political leadership in this society. I will, I will say it quite frankly, that if you think of the difference between John F. Kennedy in 1960 and George W. Bush in 2000, in 40 years, there was a remarkable transformation in the quality of people who were running for office in this country. Just think about it in those terms. John F. Kennedy in 1960. Whatever else may be said about him was an extraordinarily well educated man. What has happened in 40 years later? Just think about it in those terms.
3: Some, some might
1: claim you enjoyed Bush is well <laughs> educated going to enter the same university, Yale and Harvard. But this is precisely the issue. Going to university is no guarantee of education. As I tell people, I was educated in spite of the schools I went to. <laughs>
5: you were talking about the University of Michigan case, Grutter uh, v. Bollinger, I think, uh, 2003. Uh, one of the most important aspects of that case was uh, O'Connor's talking about 25 years and in the 25-year in the time frame of hopefully that the, the critical mass of underrepresented groups would be represented on campuses in, in that time frame. Do you, Where do you... I mean, that, that's probably where most of the dissent from her opinion kind of came off of. And I'm just kind of curious what you think about the 25-year time frame and if it was more idealistic or more of just kind of saving her own backside to put it in there.
1: I, I would, there may be a certain level of uh, political coverage, but I think it was also a very important way of actually phrasing the issue that we have had 50 years and we haven't solved this problem. If you can't fix it in 25 years, then something is seriously wrong. So I would say that it is a call to action to say that within the next 10 or five years, the school systems and the educational system needs to be restructured. Otherwise, there will be this continuous problem. And I think she's quite frankly recognizing that reality. Yeah.
3: Do you think that the declining um, interest or uh, interest in education or importance given to education is related to the outsourcing of jobs, so that young people feel that education is less important because there are less jobs that require, you know, available to them.
1: No, I, I would say that uh, it is not a question of jobs. One of the interesting things about this society is that, because of its expanse, people have moved in search of jobs. I would make the argument. But what is in fact happening is that the export of jobs is undermining the tax base for many local economies which is then having a multiplier effect in terms of the ability of these school systems to offer education. And this, is make, this is why I would make the argument that there has to be national funding for education so that the vagaries caused by changes in local economic environments do not adversely affect the school systems. If the schools are properly funded, they can stay in operation and keep educating people. The point about it is that if the local funding system continues to have these kinds of problems, you'll have these problems of inequality, which then become deeply entrenched. Yes.
4: I couldn't hear you too well, so if you covered this, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Racism has been a part of this country. The Indians, blacks, the immigrants, the immigrants again. Uh, There is a difference between a rhetoric and a reality. Okay. How do you move these together? education is absolutely very important, especially in the public school systems. And what do you think about the federal government mandating civil rights curriculum for public education and paying for it?
1: I don't know that the federal government needs to mandate it. I think that people need to be taught it in schools in in a very real sense. I would make the argument that the problem is not the federal government. It's the colleges of education that operate in the universities across this country. How many of them actually systematically teach about the ethnic and racial diversity of the society within their curriculum in terms of training teachers who will then go on to teach? There is very little teaching of these issues in the colleges of education that prepare the teachers to actually go and teach. Let let me put it to you this way. Several years ago, I had a conversation with some people here at Penn State. And I said to them that given the income disparities in this society, increasingly public education at every level will be much more diverse than private education. And that as publicly funded institutions, they had a responsibility to start planning now, not only for Penn State, but in terms of training people who were going to teach in the school systems about functioning in multicultural and multi-ethnic classrooms. Some of the people actually told me that I was telling them something strange. That to me is really striking. It is part of the, the federal government may have a lot of problems, but I think within the universities, there are also problems that need to be addressed. And the redesign of the curriculum. Eisenhower's comments in 1955 to Penn State's convocation ceremonies hasn't changed anything that happened here in the last 50 years.
3: Um. I've been told so often that citizenship has always been a contested issue in this country's history let's go back to citizenship you mentioned the Supreme Court okay the Supreme Court came out in favor of uh, desegregation the other branches of the uh, federal government at that time basically were not on board and for all practical purposes we can say Congress has long been let's say, as an institution, not on board. Um, My question to you, I guess, is you have the... Okay, I get the impression the Supreme Court is saying there's this type of citizenship, equality across the board, so on and so forth. Uh, No longer should there be, let's say, uh, be defined by, okay, property ownership or race. But the whole issue of class, which other people have brought up, the economic angle, is not solved was not addressed, um, which leads to the, which makes me think that there are different uh, arguments or different definitions of citizenship um, in that that has not been addressed. Or let's put it this way, um, will not be addressed to, let's say, our satisfaction of having equality across the board in the public school system
1: let me uh, put it this way. If people take citizenship seriously in this society, public education will be an index of citizenship, according to the Supreme Court. The question is, we have to separate out where the responsibilities for several kinds of decisions are made. I would make the argument that politicians never act unless they are facing pressure. That 's a simply reality of political life. and I would make the argument that if people are serious about their own education and access to education, they have to pressure the policymakers, and they have to do it consistently and very deliberately and The reason I say that is that if citizens do not undertake what is needed on their own account, why would their leaders take them into consideration? That's at one level. The second thing that I think is particularly important in this issue is the question of the educational institutions, that, it's, that are run largely by teachers or the universities, uh, by faculty and administrators. I would make the argument that a fundamental part of the problem that has faced this country's uh, inability to address the problem of access to equality is the way that people are taught from, K, from kindergarten through university in this country. And I would say that the faculty of the universities have to accept some responsibility for, for these failures because there is an issue that has to be addressed. People are being one of the things that struck me, um, and this is something that I really realized when I first came to Penn State, I started teaching a freshman seminar and uh, one of the things I did was I laid out a very detailed course outline for, for the kids, telling them what they had to read, what documentaries you'd be seeing and so on, what writing assignments and so on they had. And they told me that it was the most difficult course they had. Now, I find it intriguing that having a well-structured curriculum was considered as a sign of difficulty. Something has to be seriously wrong in the way that we organize the educational system, that a well-structured curriculum for a course is seen as a sign of difficulty.
2: Previous question about disenfranchisement, um, because it seems to me, and I wonder if you would agree, that the African American community is no more apathetic and perhaps less apathetic as voters than other portions of the of the of the community um, of the society. And you know, I'm thinking back to the last political election, when uh, last presidential election, when people in African-American communities stood in line till all hours of the, the night trying to vote and often were uh, were blocked from doing so. So, you know, and I would, I would guess that that doesn't correlate to their level of education or what we, we would define as the quality of their education. So that was one, one thing. And then the other thing, quickly, is um, I'm just sitting here listening to us talk about the the public schools and realizing that perhaps that notion doesn't even exist really as as a something we can define as a an entity the public school system because if you look at the wealthiest suburbs public schools it, it's not recognizable as the same system to the schools we will find in in uh, the poorest communities And so, just wanted to throw that out. Yeah, this is where I say
1: that the the funding of the educational system has to become a national issue. It cannot be done at the local level any longer. If people are going to be serious about educational reform, it has to be funded at the national level, or in a compromise at a statewide level. Um, Partly because of these uh, financial uh, disparities. But I would also make the argument that, uh, that one of the interesting things to me is that if you actually look at voting statistics for African-Americans across the country, there are higher vote participation rates in the South than there are, are in the North. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the struggle over the vote in the South was much more prolonged, and it is in much more recent memory. But I think what is also uh, particularly important to keep in mind is that for a very long time there has been confusion about the question of equality in this society. I would make the argument that equality in this society starts from the premise that everyone is entitled to citizenship and if people had to struggle for citizenship and did not become fully citizens of this country until more than 200 years after its founding. The question that has to be asked is what, over the course of 200 years, have created conditions that have now become accepted as normal? Right? One of the most striking, uh, how should I put it, Let me me put it this way. I have been amazed at the fact that, looking at the educational statistics in this country, that people have accepted the disparities between access to education on the scale that they have. And I say this in some very interesting ways. One of the things about teaching at Penn State that has really intrigued me is that whenever I am teaching a class, within the first two weeks, I can tell the kids who come from middle class school systems and those who come from either the rural school systems in Pennsylvania or minority school systems in the cities. It is very easy. The level of exposure to language is clear. I can tell those who are confused about some of the things I'm talking about. I can see it in their body language, I can see it in a whole range of things. What is striking for me is that, and this is where it goes beyond the issue of race, is that if you come from a poor school district, whether in rural Pennsylvania or in the cities, the quality of the education is the same. Race is no boundary there. And that to me is striking that this society is willing to live with this. You see a shift over whatever time frame. Uh, what families, what kids learn from families,
3: uh, shifted to what the schools, what the families normally would teach, but schools seem to take over that responsibility.
1: Uh, do you see a, any evidence of that, or am I just, it seems that like the schools are taking on roles that they didn't have years ago as far as helping kids decide what is right and wrong and those kind of things versus a, a parent, parent's role? I, I, would see, I would see it as a wider problem in this society the breakdown of family structure. Right, that was my and I would make the argument that it is also tied, on to, tied to the breakdown of the extended family structure. Um, the extended family in many other societies, performed an important socialization function. I would make the argument that the shift to the nuclear family in this society has been a source of the problem. The school, in fact, becomes a replacement for the extended family, but it is not as invested in the children. One of the things that is striking for me is that when kids come here to Penn State, the first thing they look to do is, whether they're joining a fraternity or a sorority, what clubs they are going to get into, they are trying to establish social networks as they are stepping away from their family. But the interesting part about it is, do they have the skills to function in these social networks? And I think this is part of the problem that we're dealing with, that in a very real sense, the schools are being asked to assume a function that they are not adequately prepared for. How you address it at the level of family policy will have to be a question of public policy at the level of the government. But I would make the argument that the schools can't do it, because if they take on these other functions, then it means that their commitment to maintaining educational standards will erode. Oh, sorry. Um, so, you don't
5: think by taking on a role as, um, I guess, a moral educator,
2: schools would suffer. In their traditional educational roles.
1: No, I, I don't. I take uh, teaching a sense of morals as part of the educational process. You have, but you teach it to the wider. You teach it in the context of providing people with the sense of how to navigate the wider society. You don't teach it at the level of personal morality. My assumption is that you arrive at school already exposed to questions of personal morality. What the school does is provide you with the morality to exist in the wider environment and how to deal with. People as your fellow citizens. And this is where I'd make the argument about race and citizenship. If the schools are not teaching about the experience of all kinds of Americans, how are they getting these kids to morally engage the wider society? So, yeah. uh, I just want
5: to very really, uh, revisit the lady's uh, question about the, the voting mm-hmm. uh, participation and the level of education. I didn't quite. Uh, hear your response to that. Um, I'm just wondering if you know that, that has an effect um, in terms of apathy or uh, because if you look at they look at, okay, it's an African-American community, look at the kinds of uh, uh, education facilities and so on and the quality of teachers that we have. Um, you tend to uh, not be committed to what's going on uh, at the national level, uh, in terms of the, the political uh, level, um, I just I just wanted to
1: find out. No, that. let me put this. Let, let me uh, be very straightforward about this. This is the question of apathy in the society is not related to income or educational levels. The question of apathy is related to the ability to buy political access. All right. Let me, to buy political access. So I would make the argument that the people who can afford to buy political access are the ones who will help to shape policy. And at that level, that is the source of a lot of the apathy that you find in the politics of this country. That people feel, and this, is, this goes across class levels, Unless people have a, a deliberate interest in binding... This is one of the things that has really struck me about the way that politics is operated. People, if they can make contributions, will get access. If they don't make contributions, they don't get access. So it's the functioning of the political process. I would make the argument that has a lot to do with the levels of voter apathy in this society. It is not, per se, education. <coughs> people can vote. Every president since the, since the late 1960s has been elected with less than 30% of the totable, total eligible voting population in this country. This has been going on for years. I would make the argument that this is not about education and access. I, this is, a, sorry, education and citizenship. This is about being able to buy political access. And it's the functioning of the political process that is at the source of the problem. All right, does that sorry? Yeah, yes,
4: do you believe it's a form of racism when strong disagreement was made in terms of giving African American students preference to go to college?
1: Let me put it this way it is it is certainly racist at a certain level, but there is also something that needs to be understood. And that is that there has been a long history of fear that education for African Americans will redefine their status in this society. What is striking for me, is that just think about it, that under slavery, people could be jailed or executed for educating slaves. What is striking for me is that in this country that these legacies have remained down to the present. But there's another issue that is particularly important. To what extent has there been deeply inculcated in this culture the notion that if African Americans are educated to the level of equality that operates for white Americans, that the entire moral universe of this country will be upended. Let me, let me just give you an example. In 1991, a senior American academic said to me, I can't understand how you are so well educated." I understood what he meant immediately. He was, in fact, saying that if you were an African-American, you would not have been as well-educated as you are. To me, it was extraordinary that he could actually articulate this. It's not even a question of thinking it, but that he could articulate it, that it had become routine in his mind, that it was acceptable to articulate these kinds of sentiments. And this is what I was saying, that over 200 years, The exclusions that have been part of this culture have become deeply embedded in the culture. People articulate it without even understanding what the significance of what they're saying. It has become deeply ingrained. It's not a question simply of racism. I would make the argument it's a habit of mind. It is now deeply embedded in the culture.
5: The, the form of education of the students in your class so quickly, is that correlated then to their final success in your class?
1: No, I tell them, I tell them individually when I write on their assignments what they need to do. There are some of them, I, I was fascinated several years ago when a kid submitted an assignment and I wrote on something, you have to go to the writing center, otherwise I'll fail you because I'll not accept this level of work. She went to the writing center and at the end of the course came to tell me, she got a, a C finally for the course, to tell me that she was glad I'd sent her to the writing center. And then I asked her, I said, How is it that you don't know how to write? And she said, Mr. Ferser, I didn't have an English teacher in high school for three years. Could you imagine a kid going through high school in this country without an English teacher for three years? That is what we are dealing with.